So it's the Feast of the Epiphany. The arrival of the wise men, the Magi. More than that, the reason we celebrate this particular event is that it's the, it's the moment in which the covenant was expanded beyond the Jewish people. The day that it's kind of manifest in its glory to all the Gentiles. So this new, this new covenant that Jesus brings is kind of foreshadowed in the arrival of these wise men from the east um, who came to see the king. The old covenant was tied up kind of in a, in a people, in the Jewish people, in all the sons and daughters of Abraham. They were the ones to whom God had made a covenant. But the new covenant in Christ belongs to no particular culture. It, doesn't, it isn't kind of summed up in any particular place, although it has transformed many. If you look at where Catholics are today, you'll see us, for the most part, in South America and Africa and over in Asia. There are more Catholics in the Southern Hemisphere than there are in the Northern Hemisphere. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, so the church is growing in unexpected places. Uh, we sent missionaries to Africa 100 years ago, and now they're sending missionaries back to us. It's the way of the church to, for those who have met much to give to those who have little. Uh, when I was home in Billings a couple years ago, and I was at Mass at a hospital, and there was a missionary priest, and he took me out to breakfast afterward, and was kind of asking me about the situation for seminarians here, and I was telling him about the shortage that we have in our diocese and, and in the East and kind of in the whole country. And I must have looked like I was pitying myself or, or nervous or something. So he cut me off and he said, Kirby, there is no shortage of priestly vocations in the Catholic Church. And I was kind of taken aback by that. And, but then he told me that in his diocese, they receive 200 applications a year over in Nigeria in his home diocese. 200 guys want to go to seminary every year. They can only accept 50 because they only have 50 beds. And then, at even, even so, they can only ordain 20 guys a year because they just don't have enough for them to do beyond that. So even if you feel called to be a priest, if you're not smart enough, they'll just kick you out. Uh, so that's, they have too many vocations in that diocese. And so it's kind of humbling to think, because uh, I think we, we get a little insular and we think that Oh, man, we're, we're struggling over here, so therefore the church is struggling. But we need to have a more kind of whole vision of the church. And that's kind of what we contemplate today and what we celebrate in the Epiphany, this massive edifice of the Catholic Church. And there's many beautiful things that we can say about the church, that it kind of transcends culture, as I just said. It's everywhere in the world. Uh, and... The Holy Father is indeed in Rome, and that matters. You know, that, that matters that the Holy Father's in Rome. But our current Holy Father is from uh, Argentina, and our Holy Father before that, Germany, before that, Poland. Uh, and Rome isn't even the only church that was founded by an apostle. We have, you know, Alexandria and Egypt and Ephesus and Antioch. They were all founded by apostles. So it's not even the oldest church. And Jerusalem, you could say where it all started, is definitely no western city. So the church is kind of magnificent in its diversity. It's also ancient and wise. I do hope that you make it to Rome someday to see the museum and the, and the library there, just to see the kind of breadth of wisdom that the church has taken in and given back to the world. And I could go off and list off a lot of those things, but you could also just go on Wikipedia and look it up, and you'll get pictures to go along with it, so I'll just let you do that. Uh, and I don't think it's necessarily useful 
for what I want to say, because I think if you went out on the street today and asked people to give you one descriptor of the church, one adjective to describe the Catholic Church, I don't think they'd give you any of the ones I just gave. They might give something like out of date or rigid or bureaucratic or rich, maybe chauvinist or a source of scandal. You might hear a lot of that. And I, I, I get that not only from you know, my non-Christian friends, I get that from Catholics. And definitely from my Protestant friends that I have a deep respect for. And I think they're being honest when they say that, when they make those accusations. And so I think it's worth looking at. And I, I'd like to ask the question, uh, I think it's worth asking, why do we need the church as it stands? You know, what, why can't we just have Jesus? All these laws and rubrics kind of govern everything that we do in the church. Um, do we really need that? Uh, why can't we just operate the way that the non-denominational churches operate, where you just come together and you sing, and then you read the word, and you listen to the, the message of the pastor, and you pray, and then you go out on your way? Uh, well, I think we need to look at the scriptures today, because I think we begin to, to get an answer for that question. Uh, so St. Paul tells us in the second reading in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, The mystery was made known to me by revelation. It was not made known to any other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Revelation. The Magi came because God was revealing something entirely new. God was speaking in a definitive way. And Christ is that definitive voice. So between the gospel that Jesus gave us and the end of the world, there's nothing new. We have it all. We're currently just fleshing out what that means. That's what the church is. John of the Cross uh, says it very succinctly. He says, anyone who wishes to question God or to seek some new vision or revelation, desiring something more than Christ, beyond him, to him God could answer, in my word I have said everything. In Jesus, God spoke everything he wanted to tell us. So he came among us himself and told us these things both in his words and his preaching and in his death on the cross, he gave us this final revelation. But that was 2,000 years ago. Jesus came 2,000 years ago. How do we even know that the scriptures that we have today, that the communion that we celebrate, that the Eucharist that we have, how do we even know that's what Jesus actually gave us? How do we know that this is the revelation that St. Paul speaks of? 2,000 years is a long time. There's a lot of chaos and war and corruption and instability, not to mention just kind of general shifts in language and culture. Uh, so how do we know this is the truth? Because of the church. We know because of the church. Jesus sent us out to the ends of the world to baptize and to make disciples of all nations, but he didn't leave us without his Holy Spirit to guide us. He founded the church upon the apostles and upon Peter and said that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against it. So when the apostles went out to do all these things, when they went out to found churches and to ordain men to lead those churches, did they know that 2,000 years later we would still be doing the same thing and that the church would look like it looks today? No, absolutely not. Do we know what the church is going to look like in 2,000 years? No, we don't. We don't know whether the world will even still exist in 2,000 years or whether the end of time will come. But we can know that Christ will never abandon the church. He won't leave us to grapple in the dark. But we can trust that the church has the fullness of the truth. We use that phrase, fullness of the truth. 
But I think that leads to kind of the most important question I want to ask today. Uh, one that our culture is probably one of the first to really ask. And it, that's not even anything to do with the truth, but it's, is the church preaching something that's even relevant today? Uh, when we say the fullness of the truth, is this truth relevant to people's lives today? Are we asking, are we answering a question that no one is asking? I, I had a really short tenure as a teacher, uh, but I know that what my students hated the most was when I gave the answer to a question that they didn't ask. No one cares about the answer to a question that they don't want to ask. Uh, and I was a Latin teacher, so unfortunately that happened all too often. Not a lot of burning questions in the hearts of young children about Latin, except my heart. I love Latin. Uh, but does it so happen that the church is part of a pre-scientific world, that Jesus Christ and his gospel just doesn't strike people's hearts the way that it used to? Is that true? Because if so, then I don't know what we're doing. If you step foot into St. Peter's Basilica at noon, so if you go over to Rome and you go into St. Peter's around noon, and then you go take a siesta with all the Italians, and then you get up in the afternoon, and you go to the Roman Forum, the crowds at St. Peter's and the crowds at the Roman Forum would be really difficult to tell apart. Because they're both crowds that are looking at a thing that seems to be of the past. They're looking at a thing that seems to no longer be alive. They're just taking pictures. They're just tourists. Yet, if it actually appears that way, if, if St. Peter's appears to be part of a thing that's no longer alive, then we are to blame. If the gospel doesn't stir the hearts of people in the world, um, if it seems to be a dead thing, it's because the world looks to Christians who are supposed to be the living part of this thing, and they see nothing in particular. They see nothing that sets Christians apart from everybody else in the world. So, let me ask you this, and I, I don't think it's a, a rhetorical question, I'll ask a lot of rhetorical questions, but this is a real question. You don't have to answer it out loud right now, though. What in your life is actually different because you're a Catholic? When you think about your non-Catholic friends or even your, just your non-Christian friends, what sets you apart from them? How are you different? Other than Sunday Mass, obviously. Do they even know you're a Catholic? So if someone walked up to you on the street today and said, or asked, why are you a Catholic? Or more generally, why are you a Christian? What would you answer? What would your answer be? I think if you don't have an answer in your heart right now, if you're not ready with an answer of what defines you as a Christian, then you have a lot of soul searching to do. I'm not trying to embarrass anyone, uh, but this is the Christian life. When St. Paul heard the revelation of God, we hear this in the second reading, when God revealed himself to St. Paul, it changed everything in his life. Everything was different before and after that happened. When the Magi visited the crib, when they saw Jesus in that crib, the Gospel tells us that they returned by a different way. Their lives were changed by that encounter. So as we finish the Christmas season and enter into kind of this new calendar year, let Jesus confront you with his revelation as if it were the first time. And maybe it is the first time. If I see him a little kind of overzealous today, it's because I spent the last five days in a silent retreat I came out of there with a lot of energy. And, and I came out with energy because the Christian life is real. 
I got to spend four hours a day in conversation with the creator of the universe, with the one who made everything. I got to just be in conversation with him. And as Christians, how can we not want to tell the whole world that that is possible? How can that not be our one mission? So I'll leave you with that simple question that I brought up before. Why are you a Christian? What's your story? And don't settle for a, a pithy answer. Dig deep, because that answer to this question should and can change everything in your life. Amen.